We are all just people seeing charts and numbers. We are all the people behind the numbers. Coming to you from the balmy shores of the Arkansas River, it's Corona Apocalypse 2020, your audio acuity for the viral age. Welcome back to the second part of the themed episode about the coronavirus tests. This time around, I'm going to be taking you back, back to the beginning of the pandemic, and uncover the perfect storm of mistakes that the U.S. made that put it behind the curve of testing. So stick around while I drop you some knowledge. When numbers represent sickness and death, no one wants to be or know another number. It's been nearly two weeks since my last episode, and once again, my excuse is things are speeding up here at the end but of course as winston churchill famously put it this is not the end it is not even the beginning of the end but it is perhaps the end of the beginning bad impressions aside a lot has happened since last we talked the cdc changed its mind and declared that masks were a good thing maybe they listened to my podcast from last month and new york governor andrew cuomo announced this yesterday we're going to start here in the state of New York with antibody testing. Antibody testing means you test the person to find out if they have the antibodies, which they would have if they were infected with the coronavirus. Uh, and we're going to do that in the most aggressive way in the nation, where we're going to sample people in the state, thousands of people in the state, across the state, to find out if they had the antibodies. This is certainly good for New York, which has been the epicenter of the coronavirus in the U.S., leading the nation with nearly 250,000 confirmed cases, a third of all those across the U.S. And let's hope that the antibody tests they use are well-designed, because as I'll soon talk about, it's one thing to announce widespread antibody testing, and it's another to actually get it done. But first, the numbers. Updated for Sunday, April 19th, there are now over 2.4 million confirmed cases worldwide, with over three quarters of a million in the U.S., 653,000 considered active, which is more than the next five countries combined, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, and the U.K. Most of these countries have announced expansive antibody tests, but have already faced some major hurdles. Spain ordered 640,000 serology tests from Chinese manufacturers, only to discover that the first 58,000 were only 30% reliable and had to be sent back. And at the beginning of the month, the British government announced they would be buying millions of take-at-home antibody tests. Some sources say 3.5 million, others as much as 17 million. They got them from a couple of Chinese companies, and unfortunately they sort of forgot to get the tests validated first. On April 5th, an Oxford study reported that of multiple antibody tests they attempted to validate, none performed well enough to meet the criteria of a good test as defined by Britain's Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. So where does that leave the UK? Oxford's professor Sir John Bell hopes that the Brits will be able to develop their own antibody test within the next month, while Parliament is arguing about how to recoup the millions of pounds they apparently allocated for the faulty tests. Likewise in the US, attempts to get antibody tests that worked have proven thus far to be, shall we say, not great. Two weeks ago, a Laredo, Texas emergency room clinic dropped half a million dollars, sight unseen, to a Chinese manufacturer with an impressive-sounding name of Anhui Deep Blue Medical Technology for 20,000 antibody tests 
And while they looked legitimate, they hadn't been through the FDA emergency authorization process. And when health department officials attempted to validate the tests, they could only get about 20% sensitivity to known infected individuals. In the end, the city had to scrap plans for a drive-through testing site. The issue of faulty tests were brought up on Sunday's Meet the Press with guest Dr. Stephen Hahn, commissioner of the FDA. Here's what he had to say. I am concerned that some of the antibody tests that are on the market that haven't gone through the FDA scientific review may not be as accurate as we'd like them to be. Uh, We've authorized one antibody test already, and I can assure the American people that what we're doing is using data and science to look at those tests to make sure that they're valid, they're accurate, and they're reproducible. We know, Chuck, that no test is 100% perfect, but what we don't want are wildly inaccurate tests because, as I said before, that's going to be much worse having a wildly inaccurate test than having no test. And on that subject, his boss, the president, had this to say at his April 15th press briefing. We have great tests. We've done more testing now than any country, as you know, in the world by far. We have the best tests of any country in the world. Nobody has the quality of tests. But how true is that? Let's turn back the clock to the start of this pandemic and learn how the U.S. got into this testing mess. Hold on to your hats, because here's the timeline. New Year's Eve 2019, the World Health Organization's China office receives the first reports about cases of pneumonia of unknown etiology detected in Wuhan City. A few days later, on January 4th and 5th, the WHO publishes its first notices about this unknown disease, initially on Twitter and then on its own site. On January 9th, the WHO releases its first statement identifying a novel coronavirus as the source of this new disease. On the same day, a German biochemist, Ulfred Lant in Berlin, starts working on the first protocols based on the previous coronavirus SARS to detect this new virus. Dr. Lant runs a small biotech, TIB Mobile Synthesis Labor GmbH. Try saying that five times fast. And immediately starts investigating the virus, along with his colleague, Dr. Christian Drosten, the director of the Institute of Virology in Berlin, and a team including the German Center for Infection Research. They begin development of the first tests, those primers and probes for the RT-PCR machines that I talked about in the previous episode. Within two days, on January 10th or 11th, depending on where you are, the same day that the first death is reported in China, the first sequence of the genome is posted on the open source site, virological.org. A genome is the map, the genetic code of the virus, which in this case consists of about 30,000 base pairs. By comparison, the human genome is about 3.2 billion base pairs. And once the genome was available, the team in Germany had the makings of a working test, which they shared with the WHO. And on January 17th, these protocols were published online. And the same day, the complete genome was published at GenBank, which allowed labs around the world to begin their own process for creating tests. That was important because there were no versions of this virus in laboratories at this point. It existed only in China, which is just what occurred at the Center for Disease Control using the information from the complete genome, they were able to create their own version of the RT-PCR diagnostic test without reference to the German test that was now published by the WHO. And that's not unusual. Many countries with well-developed scientific facilities 
had their own test that they developed. In fact, China published its own version on January 24th. But back to the CDC. When they had developed their test, within two days, on January 20th, they had their first hit, their first positive result. And that was a person in Seattle, Washington area, a 35-year-old man who had just returned from visiting family in Wuhan five days earlier. But according to, at that point, the CDC's initial criteria for testing, their suspected case had to show a fever and respiratory issues. He didn't qualify, and the CDC didn't even want to test him. Washington state health officials had to push the CDC in order to accept this first test, which was sent overnight and then confirmed positive the next day. And then on January 22nd, China locked down the city of Wuhan, 11 million people. At that point, it was obvious that this was serious. Two days later, on January 24th, the CDC confirmed its second case in the United States. On January 30th, the day the CDC confirmed the first person-to-person spread in the U.S., the WHO declared a global health emergency. By then, there were just under 10,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus, nearly all in China. And the next day, President Trump issued an executive order, a proclamation on suspension of entry, which banned those coming from China starting February 2nd. At the same time, the Secretary for the Department of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, issued a determination of a public health emergency for the U.S., a PHE, to use the government jargon, which was a necessary bit of bureaucratic housekeeping under the Public Health Services Act, Section 319. A PHE determination opened the door to waiving certain legal requirements, such as privacy and licensing restrictions for medical personnel, adjusting Medicare drug reimbursements, expanding telemedicine, and activating emergency funding. But in the case of COVID-19, it led to an additional declaration four days later on February the 4th by Secretary Azar to allow the FDA to start issuing emergency use authorizations, EUAs, which provided that health organizations and companies could create medical countermeasures, yet another three-letter acronym, MCMs. But what were these MCMs? According to the FDA, medical products such as drugs, vaccines, diagnostic tests, and other medical equipment and supplies. Basically, anything that was needed to fight the pandemic, which incidentally at that point had yet to be declared. The whole concept of emergency use authorizations was altogether relatively new, having only been introduced in 2004 under the Project BioShield Act, which was initially intended to protect against bioterrorism attacks, then expanded about seven years ago under the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Reauthorization Act of 2013, with the pleasant-sounding acronym PAPRA. The very first EUA was issued on the same day to the Center for Disease Control in order for it to develop and share its virus testing protocol. The whole idea of the EUA was to speed up development of diagnostic tests for the virus, But the authorization process actually slowed it down because the requirement was that after initial paperwork was filed and the tests run demonstrating five positive and five negative confirmations from samples, either from a patient or copies of the virus, which weren't readily available, and then validated those tests against an already existing authorized test, which again wasn't available, then the FDA would quickly review the validation data and issue the EUA to allow wider testing. But it didn't quite work out that way. And we'll circle back around to it in a bit. But suffice to say that for the entire month of February, the only authorized tests were those that the CDC created.
In contrast, South Korean health officials followed a different course. On January 27th, they called a meeting of representatives from 20 medical companies across the country to a conference inside the train station in Seoul. There, Korea's Center for Disease Control and Prevention declared an immediate need to develop testing for the new virus. They were promised speedy regulatory approval. At that point, there were only four known cases in South Korea, but they were already preparing for the worst. Within a week, on February 4th, the first commercially produced test was available, and others soon followed. By the end of the month, South Korea had run over 55,000 tests and had an additional 35,000 samples still to be processed, many taken in drive through testing centers, all while the U.S.'s CDC was still struggling to get test kits out to a handful of labs and run even a 1,000 tests. At the same time, Korea, with a population one-sixth that of the United States, had confirmed over 3,100 cases, while the U.S. claimed to only have 70. Now, remember back to German biochemist Dr. Olfert Lant and his unpronounceable biotech, who had created a test before the CDC even got started? By the end of February, Lant's company, which included his wife and son, had manufactured 40,000 test kits on behalf of the WHO each of which were good for 100 tests, that's 4 million tests, which went for around 160 euros each, or about $180. These were sent around the world to any country needing them, except, of course, the U.S. You see, he had teamed up with the Swiss company Roche to distribute the kits, which worked on their machines, the light cyclers, until later Roche developed their own test kits, which they sold. And the tests that the CDC created were validated only on their own equipment. So let's talk about that CDC test, which they announced on February 5th would begin shipping copies of to 70 state and local public health labs, as well as international labs, allowing them to run that same test themselves. The CDC had put together 200 of these kits, each of them good for up to 800 samples, about 160,000 tests. These were produced by Integrated DNA Technologies and included four vials of primers and probes in the kits, Everything you would need to validate your RT-PCR machine to diagnose the virus. That is, if you had the exact equipment that the CDC specified. And here's what's in those very narrow requirements. This isn't exactly a secret, but you're not likely to hear these details from anywhere else. The specimen was to be purified using the Roche MagnaPure 96, which you could pick up for as low as 16,000 used, or originally 85,000 new although Roche would happily claim that the list price was twice that. The reagent for purification was the MagnaPure DNA and Viral NA small volume kit, which you could get for under 2800 The specimens were to be amplified on a specific RT-PCR machine by Thermo Fisher, the applied biosystems Quant Studio 7 Flex, which would set you back at least a cool 50000 And the reagent to use in these machines was the applied biosystems TACPATH One-Step Master Mix, good for 2,000 reactions, at a cost of only 38.75 for 10 milliliters. So, to kick things off, 80 to 100,000 for the lab equipment that matches the CDC specifications. And as I mentioned, those specifications were the only ones that the FDA was allowing to run the tests at that point. The kits started going out on February 5th, and within a week, the CDC had to admit that they had a problem. Here's what Dr. Nancy Messonnier, director of the CDC's National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, revealed in a teleconference call on February 12th. The state gets the test kit. They have to verify that it works the same in their lab that it worked at CDC. Um, and when some states were doing this, 
we received feedback that they weren't that it wasn't working as expected. Dr. Messonnier went on to explain that in trying to validate the tests, the labs were coming up with inconclusive results. So they tried to figure out what was going on, and here's what they came up with. We think that the issue at the states can be explained by one reagent that isn't performing as it should consistently, and that's why we are remanufacturing that reagent Obviously, a state wouldn't want to be doing this test and using it to make clinical decisions if it isn't working as well, um, as um, perfectly at the state as it is at CDC. And that's the way that things stood for weeks as the CDC tried to figure out the mess it was in. The situation got so desperate that by February 24th, health professionals were in a panic. The Association of Public Health Laboratories, which represents 130 state and local labs, sent a letter to the FDA's commissioner, Stephen Hahn, begging to be able to run their own tests. This is what it said. We are now many weeks into the response with no diagnostic or surveillance test available outside of the CDC for the vast majority of our member laboratories. Commissioner Hahn wrote back two days later stating that the FDA was prepared to open up testing, but only if the accuracy of these tests could be validated. And you remember that whole process for approving an EUA. Well, the FDA had done such a stellar job of communicating with health labs that no lab had yet applied or been granted an EUA in nearly the month since the public health emergency was declared. In fact, only 12 public labs, in addition to the CDC, out of more than 100 nationwide, could do their own testing based on the CDC's test kit. And they had processed only 280 samples by February 28th. So, of course, we still had no actual handle on how widespread the virus was. At that point, there were 50 confirmed cases in the U.S. On February 25th, in an almost ostrich-like claim, the CDC posted on Twitter that there is currently no reported community spread of COVID-19 in the U.S. People should follow everyday measures to prevent the spread of respiratory viruses, such as staying at home when sick and washing hands with soap and water. This was retweeted by the president. In a press conference the following day, Trump was asked about community spread and whether he was concerned about it. Does that, does that worry you? Because that seems no. to be what worries the American No, because we're ready for it. It is what it is. We're ready for it. We're really prepared. We have, as I said, we've had, we have the greatest people in the world. We're very ready for it. We hope it doesn't spread. There's a chance that it won't spread, too. And there's a chance that it will. Then it's a question of at what level. So far, we've done a great job. When you have 15 people with this whole world coming into the United States, and the 15 people are either better or close to being better, that's pretty good. Just a day earlier at the University of Washington in Seattle, Dr. Helen Chu, the lead clinical investigator for a research project called the Seattle Flu Study, decided to test their existing samples, thousands of them gathered from the community as part of a study since January. And she was going to do it without FDA approval. You see, Chu's Seattle flu study wasn't authorized to test for the coronavirus because it used a research lab that, quote, was not certified as a clinical laboratory. State officials, including Washington's chief epidemiologist, had been calling the FDA and CDC for weeks to get approval for the tests, and each time were rebuffed. So finally, Dr. Chu decided to proceed without authorization, partnering with the UW Medicine Lab of Dr. Lee Starita to create their own test for the virus. And very quickly, they found a positive, a teenager from the same county of Snohomish as the first confirmed case. A state lab confirmed the diagnosis, one of the few able to do so, and the next morning, the teen was tracked down at school and sent home. The school itself was closed down as a precaution. 
But had the lab been following the CDC's criteria, the teen would never even have gotten it tested. He had no connection to Wuhan or any of the previous cases. He was among the clearest sign of a community infection going back weeks. Yet, when the state health officials spoke to the CDC and FDA the following day, the message was still clear. Dr. Chu was not authorized to test for the virus and had to stop. Within 24 hours, the directive had changed. The lab could now test new samples, but the thousands already taken for the flu study were off-limits. The study would have to come up with a new consent form that explicitly said the results could be shared with the health department. This was, in a way, understandable. But in what was declared a public health emergency, additional bureaucracy slowed down the need to get wider testing accomplished. In the end, the Institutional Review Board overseeing the study decided it would be unethical to not test the existing samples during a public health emergency and decided to ignore the FDA. Subsequently, Dr. Starita's lab found additional cases, including ones going back at least to February 20th, a week before there was any indication that there had been community spread. And owing to its success, the Seattle flu study later transitioned into an entirely new project, the Seattle Coronavirus Assessment Network, SCAN. With funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, on March 25th, the project started providing free at-home nasal swab kits, which could then be sent back to the lab for processing. Let's go back to the end of February. At around the same time as the Seattle flu study was fighting with the FDA, at the University of Washington Medicine's Virology Lab, another PCR test for the coronavirus was being created. Just like Dr. Olfert Lant in Germany, as soon as news of a novel virus broke in January, Dr. Alex Greninger, the assistant director of the Virology Lab, started developing a test for it. Greninger was even up on the emergency use authorization process, or at least he thought he was. He filed an online form with the FDA for an exemption early on February 18th, but then discovered that his application wasn't complete. According to GQ, he also had to print it out and mail a physical copy, along with a copy burned onto a CD or saved to a thumb drive. And all of that had to be received at the FDA headquarters in Maryland before he would be granted the EUA to do diagnostic testing. Four days later, the FDA finally got back to him with even more requirements. He would need to run his test against other existing coronaviruses, like SARS or MERS, the previous epidemic viruses. But those weren't exactly something you could order on Amazon. So he put in a request to the CDC for a sample of genetic material from SARS, but was denied. Because the CDC wasn't just going to send out a highly contagious virus to just anyone, even if they were being required by the FDA to use it for creating a test for the new SARS. Eventually, he tracked down a sample of RNA from a less dangerous coronavirus at a lab in Galveston, Texas, which the FDA would allow him to use. And it wasn't until February 29th, the day after the CDC announced it had a fix for its own tests, that Greninger was able to validate his tests to the FDA's satisfaction. And that test protocol Greninger used that was so hard for the FDA to validate? It was based on the one initially shared by the WHO, created by the German research team, which had already been used in millions of tests. Within days of approval, the Washington Virology Lab geared up to test up to 1,000 samples per day, which later expanded to 5,000. And that same day, the FDA loosened its EUA restrictions, finally, and allowed labs certified to perform highly complex tests to run their own diagnostics, so long as they submitted that EUA paperwork within 15 days. And the first to be approved was the Wadsworth Center, the New York State Public Health Lab, 
which had likewise already developed its own coronavirus PCR test. And immediately afterwards, the EUA floodgates were open, which is what I'm going to have to talk about next time, because here we are at the longest episode yet, and I haven't even gotten into March, which is where everything starts to go cray. So please, if you've enjoyed this so far, give me some feedback. I haven't heard anything from anyone, and it's kind of making me sad, because I'd like to keep this going, but it does take up a lot of time to write and edit and research all of this information, which I'm sure you've digested and have memorized and now can go and share with your community, with your friends, with your neighbors that you see from over a fence or six feet away. Because I know you're practicing safe social distancing and not gathering in mass protest against the government because you can't get into Dave and Buster's. Well, it's easy to dismiss truth before experience. It's hard to believe what we can't directly see. But to keep more people safe, to keep people alive, trust the scientists. So for now, this is Simon signing off. But before I do, a special shout out to Jeff for keeping after me to get this put out. Also, the awesome music is by Cara Square, Numbers, published by CC Mixer. Check it out. Break free from your mind of fear. Find strength. Ah, this is not the end. Uh, It is not even the beginning of the end. Uh, But it is perhaps the end of the beginning.